0: Bananas.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, for the record, there's absolutely no reason That we can't just change that code word to something that is actually a little bit cool or at least (laughs) legitimately funny instead of just like 2008 core
1: random funny. (laughs) We could, but then what would be the fun in that? I mean, do you have your d20? I do. I do. What'd you get? I rolled an 11. I got a 10. Oh, I edged you out just barely. Just by just barely. Ladies and gentlemen,
0: welcome to the show about great stories, great video games, great movies, great television shows, television shows, just like that, television shows. Anything that's got a great story, we are so, so excited to talk about it. Uh, Are we kind of picky? Yeah,
1: just a little bit. Um, Do we have a good time? Absolutely. Daniel, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing great. I can't wait to talk about uh, our Triumph for today because it is just one of my favorite um theatrical experiences of all time um i have good memories it's kind of like one of those ultimate triumphs
0: like like i think this is a a trilogy that's been at the top of the list from the very be- you know very inception of the show you know what are those things that are just greatest of all time stories and this is among them and there's a very very good reason we're doing it now um i i suppose we should start with my confession are you ready i i am ready I I mean, at the risk of being a broken record, I feel like I have one of these confessions every episode of every, (laughs) you know, of this show that we do. Uh, I saw the Lord of the Rings trilogy for the first time when I was a sophomore in high school, which was the year 2014.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That hurt a little bit. And I, I watched
0: all three standard theatrical release. Mm -hmm. And just binged them in one Mm -hmm. crazy, you know, summer evening with my dad. And uh, they were amazing. And I cried. And a year later, I had forgotten almost everything. I couldn't remember anything that I had watched or uh, just that I loved them and they were great. And then I never went back to them again, mostly because of the time commitment. And then because the novelty was gone. Right. I had seen them Mm -hmm. as done. Yeah, you're right. They're great. Oh Sam, we love Sam, poor Sam, and then and then fade to black, move on with my life. So, I was very very for a number of reasons which we won't get into on the show today, but I had a unique opportunity to experience uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy extended edition uh and just absolutely ate them up over the course of a few days, which led to us deciding that we were going to finally record this very very important very hallowed of episodes. Um but that's my confession Daniel. It's been a long it's been 10 years since I saw Lord of the Rings for the first time and I have now just as of a week ago seen it for the second time. Uh but again, this time watching the extended editions which I um
1: did not find to be too long at all. I could have I could have watched more. Yeah, there the just the fact that we have the extended editions of these great films is just an amazing treat. And um, I don't think that's something that you could do with all movies. <laughs> Justice League. Um But, you know, sorry, or, I thought I, did you, sorry, did you say something, Daniel? To, oh, sorry. Yeah. The, I, I meant to press the cough, uh, the cough mute button. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. So, but uh, with Lord of the Rings movies, the extended editions absolutely are worth it. And, um, and in fact, When people sort of uh, get worried about, oh, I don't know if I should see the extended editions, the theatrical movies are already so long. My recommendation, especially now, is to say um, if that is a concern of yours, if you're worried about the length, first off, they're great. So honestly, for me, the time just flies by. I don't even realize that I just watched a a three-and-a-half-hour movie. Yeah. But on top of that, I I find that because of the way that it's been structured, there are a lot of really great stopping and break points sprinkled throughout the movies um, so that you can sort of take a pause. It's not intense 100% of the way through. You can sit it and you can actually watch it much like you would uh, binge watch a uh, prestige television show. Um, And if you go in with it with that mindset, um, it becomes a lot. I think it becomes a lot more palatable um, in that way because you can kind of give yourself permission to pause the movie and take a break when it hits one of these nice-fitting stopping points, make some popcorn, go to the bathroom, whatever. Um, Or, you know, you can also use the extended edition credits uh, at the end of every movie as your uh, intermission, if you must. Uh, You can just let the credits roll. Well, it sounds like what we're saying here, Daniel, is that the official Triumph opinion is that if you haven't
0: seen Lord of the Rings, there's no reason you can't just watch the extended edition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: There are no excuses. It's on uh, HBO excuses. Max right now. None. <laughs> yes. No excuses. Yeah, they're great. They're amazing. Yeah, they're great. They're great films. And um, I'm so glad that you finally got around to watching the extended editions because um, they're, they just add so much richness to the, uh, sure. the world, to the characters. So much. Well, and the other thing
0: you know, because obviously the world has changed a lot since twenty fourteen the The big thing that has changed is that more and more and more uh you know moments, especially from Fellowship of the Ring specifically, uh, you know have become these 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 iconic lines uh in terms of meme history in terms of internet usage history. And so I think it was, like, every 15 or 20 minutes in Fellowship of the Ring, I was like, oh, yeah, right, that one. Or, oh, yeah, Gimli's axe. Or, oh, yeah, (laughs) why why shouldn't Bilbo keep the ring? Uh, Just these moments, I was like, oh, yeah, I saw
1: that yesterday on Twitter. Bo, well, one simply, you cannot simply walk into Mordor, okay? You cannot. Yeah. What an asshole Boromir is. Hey, no, I will defend Boromir. Okay. Okay, begin. Okay, Okay, so... And the thing is, when you see, you learn more about his history, um, especially with uh, Return of the King, where we actually meet his father, and we see he was, I mean, he basically treated him like uh, like the golden child, right? And he left uh, Faramir to basically be um, ignored. He was the lesser brother. Um, he wouldn't. Boromir was basically set up with, you know, this ridiculous burden of of single-handedly, essentially, like, defending Gondor. And it's important to remember that he and his uh, people were essentially um, fighting a constant war for generations just to keep the, the forces of Mordor at bay, like for pretty much his entire life. Sure. He's been at war waiting for the prodigal King to return. And there's just a sense that he'll never return, that there's not going, there will be not another like great leader to unite man again. And so they just have to keep, uh keep going on. And um his father pressures him to take up the mantle as leader and to lead his people to, um to greatness. And, Um, when he gets corrupted by the ring, as everybody gets corrupted by the ring, the temptation, like he wants to use the ring in his mind because he feels like, well, like this whole, this is a, this is a fool's errand. The the king we need isn't coming. The king we need isn't coming. We don't, there's not, there's not enough power in the elves or the dwarves. Like it's, it's not going to happen. We need to take this ring. We need to use it to to like restore the former glory of Gondor and to and to stop Sauron in this uh, slot, onslaught once and so, for all.
0: So it's not, you know. So what you are saying is that when Boromir, you know, says the line, "One does not simply walk into mortar," he's he's speaking from a position of. Authority, you know, personal experience and and knowledge because because Gondor is so close in proximity to uh, the Black Gate. Right. And so he he has intimate fear and intimate knowledge that others don't possess. Right.
1: Well, and also in in Return of the King Extended Edition, you know, there's that scene where uh, he um, they've retaken. I think it's Askelia, the sort of the town that kind of sits on the border, basically. Between Mordor and Minas Tirith, the little river town, and it's complete ruin. Right, there's ruin everywhere, and um, and he's sort of uh, you know, he, there. He's like, we we've retaken Gondor, or we've retaken Osgiliath, but it's like it's it's in ruins. Like, what what was the point? What sacrifices have been made? You know, and there's just there's constant like like World War One almost era sort of sense of um, you know, pushing battle lines for, for no other reason than, you know, they push, we push back, they push, we push back. So, you know, I, I feel like he really does truly understand that like the power of Mordor is so uh suffocating. And the only reason why he hasn't swept over Middle Earth is because of the sacrifices of his people. And he just sees them all lording lording around and in, you know, and uh talking about like, things they can't possibly understand. Oh, well, we should just destroy it. And he's like, this is literally the only thing we have that could change the tide. Okay. so All right. Yeah, Bormir's him.
0: Did not realize we were starting to struggle. Thought we were talking about That's, memes.
1: Nope, nope. That's all right. I will defend Bormir. I will defend Bormir. And he and he goes out like a boss. He sacrifices himself yes. to yes. let him go. And he, makes it, he has yes. a moment of weakness. A moment of very human a weakness. A few moments. But he goes out like a boss. A few moments. A few
0: But, you know, at, by the end of the, I mean, by the end of the trilogy, Frodo, you know, Frodo has even more moments of temptation than, than Boromir did. So
1: for sure, Um, for sure.
0: And, and, you know, if I was raised by Denethor II, who is almost as bad as Dolores Umbridge, in my opinion. Oh God, yes. In terms of one of those characters where you're watching them on screen and you just like want to scream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Perhaps asshole is too harsh. Didn't mean to come out swinging there, Daniel. <laughs> Didn't mean to put you on the defensive all of
1: a sudden. Yeah, yeah. Don't 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 knock my board. I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> well, so all that to say, it's very very interesting to watch them 2024. Lots of moments that have obviously been uh, solidified, memorialized forever on Reddit and other places. Um, no. I I I guess the other part of my confession is I never read the books. Oh wow! And so you know, the extended editions for, I I know. Yeah. The extended editions for me are such a deep, um, I, I, a much, well, I guess they're a larger piece of the iceberg, which I know is, is, um, Tolkien's universe that has been constructed and I can understand it and I can sort of admire it, but I, I don't have that personal experience with it. So, um, you know, all I have is Peter Jackson's take.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it's a great take for sure. Uh, The books, I mean, honestly, I think it's one of the strongest uh, adaptations probably ever put to film. Um, They made the movies the way I think that the only really the best way that they could have. Like you could have made it maybe more fantastical and focused uh, maybe on different elements. But uh, to make like a blockbuster movie that still respects the world and respects the character is and, um, you know, is going to appeal to a wide variety of tastes and tell an epic story like they 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 hit that, in my opinion, really hit that perfectly. Like they they really sure. threaded that that needle um, in a great way, because uh, there's a lot of great stuff in the books for sure. Um, you know, most iconically, uh, Tom Bombadil is often talked about as sort of this uh, character that uh Never made it into even the extended edition. Never mentioned even in passing. Um, but I don't feel like the the loss of Tom Bombadil affects the course of the film or what story it was trying to tell. Uh, and the books is great. It definitely makes the world feel bigger and that there are forces outside of you know the War of the Ring and um, and forces beyond what what we can understand. But You know, in the movie, it would just it would feel like a um, um, a very strange distraction um, to introduce a character that um, doesn't serve any major point to like the movers and shakers of uh, of what will actually decide the fate of Middle Earth. So, um, I'm 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 okay with that. I think it was a great uh, uh, adaptation overall. If you ever get a chance to read the books, they're definitely worth reading. Of course um, they are, they're great. They're great. Yeah. Um. But the the Lord of the Rings movie adaptations, um, you know, do a really good job of adapting it. Um. There are a few other things like, um, the the conflict between Sam and Frodo is kind of more manufactured in the movies than it is in the books. Really. Um. So they they which Peter Jackson I think again did to sort of like raise up the tension, right? Sure. So that we, so that, that final scene is, a, is
0: just truly heart pounding
1: and. Right. Right. Cause it, it, in the books, it, it's a lot more subtle and, um, there's not really like, um, an overt moment where, where, where Frodo has sort of lost, um, his soul basically to mm. the corruption of the ring. Um, because it's mostly told like, you know, an inner dialogue and in smaller moments, right? Yeah. Um. So, but Peter Jackson needed to kind of make it more visually, you know, like a bit a bit punchier. Um. Yeah. Because those those subtle moments are, it, it wouldn't have worked. Uh. In the type of movie that they were that he was making, so and, and again, it does succeed. Choices.
0: I mean, that final, you know, Sam carrying Frodo up Mount Doom, encountering Gollum again, um. The will they won't they, you know, drop the ring into the fire. Which is not how most people <laughs> when they say will they won't they? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> will they won't they? Frodo and Sam, tune in next time. <laughs> um no, I it, it, I mean it works. It works really, really well. I think that's the just like the quintessential moment where, you know, you just can't help but be moved to tears. Mm-hmm. And it's also a moment that is made all the more powerful by You know, by being in that last 45 minutes, that last 30 to 45 minutes of a beautiful nine hour adventure um, where every moment is earned and you feel like you've you've walked every barefooted step that these hobbits have walked to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's just it's it's a it's an incredibly well-earned moment, I think, on Peter Jackson's part. So um, there were some things I was going to ask you as a book uh as as somebody who's familiar with the books i'm curious to understand how is the scale of time portrayed in the books versus the the films and i guess what i mean by that is it's never really acknowledged how much distance um you know the characters cover at one point i think i think mm-hmm. there's at one point in return of the king when they finally make it back home they're like and, and a full 13 months or 12 months or 13 months after they had left the shire they returned to it again Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge amount of mileage, right? That they must have covered. And I feel like, um, you know, the closest the film gets to portraying it is, is when they start to out, run out of bread, uh, in like the beginning of Return of the King. Right. Um, and maybe maybe it's tedious. Maybe you don't want to see them. Oh, it's so, so, so far. we it's going to take us forever to get there. Like, you don't want to do that every 25 minutes, but I don't know. I feel like, the effort that they went through was more implied, than it was um felt,
1: yes, yes, and you're you're totally right on that point. The books definitely uh extend the amount of time um between hitting sort of uh points uh you know landmarks that they visit um but also in a lot of other ways, like um when Bilbo gives up the ring and you know, we have the long expected party, uh, and you know he disappears and all that stuff. And he gives up the ring and he goes off to Rivendell. Um, and then Gandalf's like, "Something's not right here." I am um, gonna, and he, you know, goes off to more uh, uh, Gondor to do some research. Right in the books, there is like a thirty-year gap between Whoa. when he leads off to um, um, Rivendell. And um frodo's just sort of kicking around back ends um and without Bilbo uh, without Bilbo, and um you know Gandalf is gone, right um and then when he returns and he's like, you know hey you gotta you gotta go on this adventure and you know wrap Sam into it in the in the movie, it's like, okay, you gotta leave tonight, right, get out of there well, in the in the books, it's like, okay, no, we." We we need, we're we're about to go on a you know a long adventure, uh you know we need to prep, you know we need to like get all of our supplies together. And again, it's like a few weeks or whatever. I can't remember exactly how much time, but they spend a decent amount of time, uh you know preparing well, moment, for this a long a moment adventure. You said
0: thirty years. Uh, it's yeah. a thirty-year gap when Gandalf goes to. Uh, I mean, because I'm 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 over here googling like Hobbit lifespan. Right. Okay, so yeah. So Frodo is like like what, 20, 30 at the beginning of
1: the adventure? Yeah. Yeah, he's basically like yeah, young and then Yeah, there's at the beginning well the thing is like at the very beginning um you know, uh it's kind of like well, it, he's just gone for a while and then uh and then Gandalf sort of comes back. So the adventure doesn't really begin until after that 30-year gap. Okay, but it, it can- you know. surely it can't be 30 years though. I can't remember exactly how long it is, but it's a long time. I'm sorry to Uh, pin you on that. I just, it broke my brain for a second. But I remember reading it, looking it up and being surprised at how long uh, it was. Um, But yeah. And then again, it's like a few weeks before, you know, they're, they're going to pack up and then they're going to go on their adventure. And then, you know, there is a longer, a bigger focus on all the different places that they go and the travel. And the way that they visit or the way they go and and the, um, you know, methods that they take uh, to travel, whether it's by foot or or by boat or or whatever. So, um, but again, like in a movie, that would be really, really tough to uh, uh, give a sense of that uh, adventure.
0: Or at least to do
1: it in an entertaining way. In an entertaining way, yeah. I don't know, and maybe this is
0: one of my little pet peeves, but I would love just at some point I would love for a film to show me exactly how much food, uh, you know, a character has, and then h- how that supply progresses along the course of an adventure. Like one thing that really bothers me is is not seeing people eat, um, like 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 you see the Avengers eat shawarma once in an end credit scene. <laughs> Right. Otherwise, all the eating is implied, right? But I would love to see like a hero take a bite of a sandwich in the middle of a battle, in
1: right. the same <laughs> way.
0: Like, like I want to see those realistic markers of like living life. But I realize that's not entertaining, and maybe,
1: maybe that's I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, well, there are a few iconic uh, eating scenes in this no, movie. No, of course. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, you're movies. right. I mean, obviously, the but Hobbits I know what you are mean. all about
0: eating and potatoes and the lambus bread and, um. Uh,
1: Smeagol eating the fish and singing the and song about it. The hobbits uh, making bacon and sausage. Uh, yes, you're uh, right. Making a fire, but no, I get I get what you're saying. Uh, uh, you know, um, there's less, yeah. So, but you know, uh, if you feature hobbits, you gotta you gotta feature eating. Feature uh, feature food. Yeah. So,
0: <laughs> how did the uh. How did the CGI look at the time is the other thing that I'm curious because, again, I mean, watching them 2014 being the first time, Mm -hmm. you know, they look fine. I don't remember anything standing out in particular. You know, I'm watching I'm watching these extended editions last week. There's that scene in uh, Two Towers Mm -hmm. where Legolas sort of jumps onto a horse backwards and he sort of reaches his arm around and sort of. Just like very clearly cuts from live action Legolas to like ragdoll CT. CGI Legolas, or maybe it's CGI Legolas for the whole time. But you know that motion blur gets painted on Vic uh, as soon as he starts to move. Yes, I don't know how did those moments feel like originally. Do they do? Do they still look like CGI then, or or is it just?
1: Oh, and when, I mean, honestly, Odyssey... I, didn't even,
0: I didn't even ask you, Dana. When did you see Lord of the Rings for the first time? I uh, I mean I saw them all in theaters when they came out. Uh, mm. every single one. Sounds like what so, like 1976, 1977, yeah, yeah. when was so- that?
1: Something like that. Uh 2001 through 2003. Mm. Um and I revisited um The Lord of the Rings movies probably like 7 8 years ago. Um and when I did <coughs> a theatrical or a theatrical release of all three extended editions back to back uh in a theater as like a special event. Um and it was amazing. And they actually had like it was one of those places where you could eat in, in the theater. Like they served sure. you food and stuff. So but it was like nine hours of just sit- sitting in this theater. We had breakfast, lunch, and dinner uh <laughs> watching uh all three of the extended editions back to back. Um but yeah my original watching is are called, uh, uh, those are the called theme- theaters by the way theaters the eaters, yeah. eaters, yeah. Well, in case you're wondering, it was a, a somewhat local chain, Alamo Draft House. Uh, oh I yeah. Don't know if they have made it out into California yet, but definitely uh, not. Definitely but not. In, in Texas, they're pretty pretty big. So, and uh, anyway, but yeah, the the visual effects I'd say looked great at the time for sure. Um, I know a lot of people. What was on a lot of people's minds at the time? What, what really impressed people were uh the big wide shots of the, like the epic battle scenes especially sure. in two towers i think that's very um has a uh probably one of the most iconic uh epic battle sieges um in cinema uh, and that being very impressive especially for the time and then yeah uh it we in the early 2000s um a lot of different filmmakers were playing with uh cgi characters like what that would look like like Fully CGI characters. Of course, we got uh, Jar Jar Binks and um, uh, the Phantom Menace, right? Um, Who was not maybe super well received, but visually was very impressive. Uh, and then Gollum kind of is the next um, sort of development of that, where um, the actor put on a motion capture suit and uh, performed the entire character in motion capture. Um, and I am blinking on the actor's name right now. Oh, Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis. Yes. Andy Circus. And we later on, uh, do, uh, Caesar and the Planet of the Apes movies, uh, and Snoke and, um, one of the, and uh, the prison, the uh, leader in, uh, Andor. Uh, so he's a great actor. He was also Sebastian gonna... Shaw or whatever his name was. Uh, and, in Marvel, uh, the, he the was... arm stealer. Ulysses Claw. Ulysses Claw. That's what it was.
0: Sebastian Shaw. I don't know. It's like an alternate universe Ulysses (laughs) Claw. It's like, it's like, it's like his evil twin. Uh, You know what? (laughs) The role that, the role that Andy Serkis did recently that I loved was I loved his Alfred,
1: uh, Mm. in the,
0: in the, in the Baddinson movie.
1: Yes. Yeah. He was a good Alfred too. Yeah. Very, very, um, very good actor, very, uh, robust actor. And, Uh, Gollum was, um, I mean, he, like, he made that role. Like he did the voice of it. He did all the, uh, body movements of it. And, um, they, Peter Jackson was very smart in the way that he did the movie visually to, um, incorporate special effects, like cutting edge special effects. Um, but blending it with more modern, like they built a lot of sets, a lot of very real sets and, Um, like the entire, um, city basically of, uh, Rohan was, um, built the entire city basically was built. Um, and so they, when they shot those scenes in, uh, in mostly two towers, so a little bit in return of the King, like they had all those sets built and, um, you, you could see the whole town. It was built basically to scale and, uh, you know, again, it makes the movie, feel so real and um i think that was another area where that's what's allowed the movie to age uh, as well as it has um i think uh, there are certainly some visuals that maybe haven't aged as well like you mentioned the legolas scene but if i remember correctly and i could be getting my my facts wrong i think that they ended up doing that scene because um the stunt double who was going to like climb onto the horse or whatever yeah. Um like broke his leg or something. Oh yeah. And so they didn't actually have a scene where they could show Legolas climbing onto the horse. So uh-huh. they ended up like, well, we need something that works. So they like basically like kitbashed this uh special effects shot. Uh Is that why the blocking together. is so weird? Like it almost doesn't
0: make sense that he would go from that side over to the other side.
1: Yep. Yep. So they were just like, oh, well, we're just going to use it as an excuse to like show off Legolas' um, uh, superior agility. Sure. Right? It's almost um, although...
0: distracting. Like, it almost <laughs> takes you out
1: of the scene. You're like, wait a second. It's just, whoa. And yet, that mounting scene has become uh, kind of a meme in and of itself. And, uh, like, Link gets that mounting uh, uh, sequence. In, yes. Uh, I think it's in... Twilight Princess. And Where maybe it sort of in... reaches back and then up. Yeah, and then he sort of loops around. Yeah, I think it's. I can't remember if he does it in Twilight Princess, but I'm pretty sure he does it in uh, Breath of the Wild. I think. If I think you, it's Breath of the Wild. If you, if you jump on the, on a horse at the right angle, as it's like coming little, towards you, yeah, he'll kind of like flip around it. So, um, it is very <laughs> iconic, but I think yeah. it, it was it was a shot that came out of necessity, and I think even then, it was a little like, it was a little it was a little iffy. Well, I kind of gave it a pass because they were like, you know, you're already like halfway through the movie. You're already there. So well, um, the, the other thing I find really interesting about the CGI
0: in these movies is they do occasionally play the Jaws game um, where they will sort of hide the thing, hide the thing, hide the thing. Bam. Big reveal. And then hide the thing some more. Hide it some more. You know. Blurry, shaky camera. The troll is now bashing rocks around, but you can't see it. Bam! Mm-hmm. There's the troll again. Okay, now we're back to running and hiding from the troll. Sorry, you know these 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 techniques which are used to try to minimize the CGI time while still telling an effective story where you're afraid of the thing. I also noticed it with the uh, spider. What's the name of the spider who lives in, in um,
1: Mordor? Oh man, uh, I, I didn't why I why warn why you. Why am Shilob, that's it, Shilob.
0: Didn't I warn that's- you there would be random trivia? <laughs> yeah, so she, you know, they sort of they sort of refrain from showing Shilob for as long as possible until they need to. Um, you know, so they can they can spend time where it counts, probably on the grand final battle. Uh, and return of the king is probably where they were spending 50% of their CGI energy. Um, but I think totally unrelated, but just a quick tangent on the Jaws rule. I think it's always effective. I don't think there's any reason to show something to death unless you have to. I mean, yes, it's that classic filmmaking rule of, of like showing the
1: one minute on the timer and then not showing it again for a minute and a half. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, said that a, um, um, a bomb exploding is action uh, a ticking bomber a ticking bomb underneath the table is suspense that's it that's what I'm thinking and, of and so yeah very um yeah again it like you, if you just have action 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 um you know it's gonna get people exhausted turned off they're gonna get deadened to just the constant action um the constant like like in the case of special effects. The constant CGI or or whatever, even if it's really well crafted, it it, you'll just kind of like become dead to it and it won't be as impactful. It's like when we finally see um, you know, uh the Witch King, you know, when it rising up on the Nazgul, right? And it's like um, you know, flying up and it's really intimidating, you know, that you know, there's a lot of payoff there. And we don't really see that very much or very long. But the moments we do see, like it's frightening and and intimidating, and and it works. Yeah, definitely. And I think that also comes from Peter Jackson's background before Lord of the Rings. Is he he directed a lot of like uh, low budget horror movies before Lord of the Rings? Interesting. So I think he, he a lot of his like talent is like um, you know making a lot of that stuff work and building yeah. tensions. And you can also see it in the movies um, because you can see he. He favors a lot of like canted angles and things like that. Yeah. A lot of like moving the camera while it's like zooming in to act for like action, like stuff that you would more see in like, um, like maybe the horror genre and less in like, you know, a cinematic epic. Um, but it's very effective. You know, he has a way of like drawing you into the emotion of a scene and, and, and making it work. Yeah. I think it works.
0: Yeah. I think it for sure works. The other thing I'm thinking is like, the timeline, because obviously one thing you and I spend a lot of time talking with, talking about on and off the show is Star Wars, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. about you know you had mentioned Jar Jar earlier, and I'm thinking about Phantom Menace, and I'm just looking at these release dates. I mean, Phantom Menace that's 1999. Mm-hmm. This is like the film in terms of the advent of digital filmmaking, in terms of the advent of CGI at, at this scale, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, so well, then, the it actually
1: what? lost uh, Fellowship the Fellowship of the effects Ring Oscar. Comes yeah right. Right after uh, the funny thing about uh Phantom Menace has actually lost the special effects Oscar to The Matrix. So again, like, like to your point, like this is kind of the era of like uh, the CGI or the, the advent of a lot of digital special effects starting to take well, over. What
0: it, what is cutting edge is not always done is not always executed flawlessly. Yes. Well, For sure. I'll, right. You know, Phantom but, Menace certainly while. Inventing all kinds of cool technologies is not necessarily the, the best-looking film ever. Um, yes, so, no, that's true. Yeah, I think Matrix uses special effects way more effectively than Phantom Menace does. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's ILM that worked on Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings. Sure. No, it,
1: it, was, uh, it was Weta, actually. To Tell B- me about B- this. T- uh, so they're uh, a special effects shop uh, that basically got created for... Um, the Lord of the Rings movies, um, and they were doing so, just a lot so of So, then really you're gonna cool tell me they poached
0: works. a bunch of ILM people. Is that what
1: happened? <laughs> uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know the whole story there. I don't think that they did. I think, um, they were really just doing a lot of really creative, passionate work, and it, it's kind of an ILM type of story in that the types of shots that they wanted, the types of scenes that they wanted nobody had really done in special effects before not to the scale they were trying to do them and uh so they really were just like ILM uh making the original Star Wars movies they just had to figure it out and just create tons of new techniques uh for uh the Lord of the Rings movies uh just because they didn't exist um like they used they created um like animated battlefields where each of the soldiers were were ai and i mean ai in the most simplistic way but they were more programmed like swarms of like a video game you didn't have to manually
0: rig every step of their every frame of their animation
1: right and they didn't also have to like direct the uh animated uh puppet um to go through all the different motions they wanted to do they would just create again like uh like uh, like uh, soldiers in a um like a real time strategy video game you know they gave them certain um like objectives and animations and stuff like that and they let these battle these battlefields just sort of play out um and then they would film digitally film um these um you know experiments essentially uh, as they played out uh and you know, they got they collected enough shots to uh, to edit into the film for these big wide shots that that felt like just like the chaos of war, right? Yeah, wow. Um, and it, it's very very effective, but it's it's kind of crazy uh, all the different uh, tech that they came up with to to make these movies happen. I think
0: that's part of what makes these films enduring. It's part of what makes them triumphs, right? Is like you have all these these moments that come together in terms of technological capability, in terms of storytelling and timing, you've got great casting, you've got director with a background that allows them to lend themselves towards this new thing. You know, you hit the market at the right time. You have a commercial success. I mean, it's all of these pieces that come together. I'm really trying to figure this out though, because again, with 10 years between the first time I watched Lord of the Rings and then into 2024, I I sort of went into these trying to figure out, okay, why is it, really, knowing that we were going to have this conversation today, Daniel, mm-hmm. I went into these films thinking, why is it that these are so well-loved? Because, you know, having, you know, between 2014 and 2024, having experienced, you know, anywhere between 80 to 100 other fantasy stories since then, um, you know, Lord of the Rings sort of stands out in a few weird ways. And one of the weird ways is you have, like, these hobbits, who are these main characters, mm-hmm. um, who don't have a lot of power or intellect or combat skill, which perhaps is part of what makes it so compelling. Um, but it's, if I think if you look at Lord of the Rings, you take away the, the the lens of familiarity and you just sort of look at it very objectively. I think it stands, um, it stands very weirdly in in the fantasy genre. There are there are a lot of quirks to it. That I think we've, we we are easy to ignore because we're just so because Tolkien invented this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but I guess we're going back to actually inventing it in the books. I I don't know. I guess there's a lot of different reasons I think Lord of the Ring Lord of the Rings has caught hold and really captures people, and
1: maybe the mm-hmm. fact that it is it invented so much. I I don't know. I guess I'm rambling here, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. It was definitely a, a perfect storm sort of situation. Uh, caught people at the right time. Uh, Tolkien's great stories uh, as a background and that they were all... Everybody who was behind these movies were all in in making it as authentic to uh, Lord of the Rings um, and, and and Tolkien's uh, world as much as possible, so... Um, you know, they speak Elvish as he wrote it, as he was intended to be spoken. Man. You know, um, the uh, art designers and the costume designers um, put all these little details uh, into all the different costumes and in the sets um, that are informed by um, the books, but also uh, Tolkien's own writing um, in the uh which is kind of like uh, a historia of uh, the Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth, um, universe. Um, so there was a real understanding about who these characters were, what world they lived in, and how they lived in. Um, but Tolkien, also, when he wrote those books, they were old-fashioned, even for the time in which they were written. Um, really? I I think they were published in the 1940s. But he was specifically mm-hmm. trying mm-hmm. to Come evoke Um, like essentially the, the kind of epic mythological stories of old, you know, he was a, uh, uh, historian of ancient, um, you know, uh, epics like Beowulf, for example. Um, so he was, he was very interested in, in sort of, um, like kind of reigniting a lot of the, um, mythology, like it, it, modern mythology, kind uh, of create a modern mythology that that people could uh, could hook into. And yeah, um, the story goes, he, he was also a big linguist, like he loved language and writing languages. And so uh, a lot of it came because he because he knows so much about language. He knows that languages aren't just created right they, they they evolve. There's a history behind it. Right. You know, um, and that's why things like Esperanto will never sort of take over as a spoken language um, because there's no culture behind it. Right. And so as sort of he was creating these languages, yeah, it's just contrived elements. So if you wanted to make a real language, a real fictional language, there had to be a real fictional history behind it. And if you're going to have a real fictional history, well, that needs to be it needs to take place in a real fictional world populated by real fictional characters that fill these different roles and so because of how much depth he put into how everything would be interconnected and the details that he would he would put in yeah um, you know that just comes across see uh in the movies and in the books uh and and gets us hooked but also because he was so attached to these older stories he would realize he and like um like fairy tales and ancient mythology and things like that. Um, He picked up on a lot of um, like sort of old fashioned story ideas, like um, the fact that like the, the hobbits aren't children, but they are childlike. Right. And I think that that's an important part of their charm. Is they're not children, so he can more realistically sort of like put them in harm's way and have them go on a harrowing journey. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know, not that you know kids can't go on harrowing journeys uh, and other stories, but you know, like Harry Potter, for example. But you know, I think it it helps that they are childlike and they and so you can create a lot of that same um, sort of drama and energy and tension. Um, that comes from the fact that people don't relate necessarily to the super powerful, super capable hyper warrior like, uh, right. like Aragorn or whatever, like um, right. uh, Like children especially, but even like normal people, they're going to get attached to the characters who are flawed, who, who are uh, still figuring themselves out, who, yeah. who have a lot of room to grow and learn and develop. And then be carried across that journey, and I think that also speaks to his larger, to one of Tolkien's larger points that, like, y- every person like doesn't need a magical lineage or, or or a special legacy or to be super strong, powerful, strong, capable. Just a few um, magic items and a good friend. Yeah, a few magic items and a good friend. Uh, you know, and that that's that's uh, that's what he had and um you know that that it was ultimately like Frodo's journey that that holds it all together like if if they were to make Lord of the Rings like as a modern movie without a book uh to base it off of Aragorn would be the main character and it would follow sure. Aragorn yeah. and if the hobbits were in it at all they would be seen more as like comic relief side characters who are just <laughs> you know at the heels of the main characters well uh Aragorn is uh is you know, doing all the heroic work. So yeah, wow. Uh, I think that's what allows it to stand uh, apart from a lot of other other stories as well, and yeah. and feel unique. The other thing that I find so so uniquely weird
0: about, um, Lord of the Rings, is uh, is is how the party splits, but then we we remain, you know, but 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 so much happens in the split, right? So. Um, you know, Frodo, Sam make their way, eventually encountering Gollum, and then all the way to Mount Doom, they stay just the the two slash three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the flip side, you have all of these um, pivotal moments in uh, Rohan releasing King Theoden from Saruman's influence, um, you know, Aragorn... Uh, Oh my gosh! So sorry, Uh, Eric. Good. i beginning to start to entertain this idea that maybe he could be king, or or what does it mean to really lead, and what do these people need? And um, you know, Gimli and Legolas sort of uh, becoming friends in a in a in a way that you know their ancestors may not have approved of. There's so much that happens. You know, I guess telling multiple plot lines is not necessarily novel, but to tell a plot line on the side. Which would be Aragorn becoming, you know, this is like a King Arthur type mm-hmm. story, which feels like a main story. And then to have the main story be, you know, Frodo and Sam, you know, which feels like sort of a side thing. It's very, 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 very weird, but also, of course, very compelling for all the reasons you outlined earlier, right? Like, the Hobbits are great characters because we want, we, you know, we want to see them succeed. They have an underdog uh, character to them they have this childlike way of behaving where they are full of joy and light and hope and naivete which is not misplaced but correctly placed and mm-hmm. and so um again just weird that's all i mm-hmm. guess that's my only comment is the is lord of the rings is weird i had to uh, forgive me i had to fact check you again lord of the rings books 1954 54 was a release yeah 54. and apparently yeah. I don't know what I don't know how we would check this or what but I'm I'm just googling Lord of the Rings books overnight success question mark uh and apparently yes they were relatively instantly successful which is fascinating I don't even know what that would cuz certainly there were no bards and nobles this is how this is how history dies right is two guys <laughs> on the internet google things and guess right um so so funny to imagine anything flying off the shelves at any particular pace, not even being able to imagine what kind of book establishments or libraries people were visiting. But again, maybe maybe I'm just a dumbass.
1: Anyway, 1954. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, and I think also Lord of the Rings uh, has sort of like ebbed and flowed with the with, in popularity. Um, you know, it would go through periods where where people would um, be really into it, um, especially like a, a creative uh, people. Um, like, there's a lot of Lord of the Rings references and a lot of uh, Led Zeppelin mu- uh, music in the 70s. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, so um, a, a lot of people would like pick it up in college and and read it um, there and, you know, word of mouth. And then it would kind of... Um, lose its uh, popularity a little bit as, as people sort of dropped interest and then it would raise some popularity. And then there were a couple of like animated movies that were okay. I guess, I I don't know how popular those were. Um, and then I think, uh, as Lord of the Rings, when, when Peter Jackson was, uh, cooking up his Lord of the Rings, um, I think there was there was some concern about, you know, whether this story would, um, truly reach a a wide audience um you know be this big blockbuster that he wanted to be or would you know would it you know which side of the uh of the line would it fall on would it would it be too heady and um like kind of pretentious and artsy um or would it be too like mind numbing and pointless and just be like a uh conan the barbarian sword and sorcery tale sure you know like oh you know is it going to be able to walk the line of, of being a uh, a popular piece of uh, pop culture media um, while also respecting um, the super fans and uh, I, you know I think that they they succeeded in that but uh, Lord of the Rings history I think as in terms of popularity is really interesting I, I read The Hobbit first and uh, I feel like it it kind of got folded into the canon of like, if you were like a nerdy kid growing up, then, then, uh, at least the Hobbit, but probably the Hobbit plus Lord of the Rings was at least in your, your knowledge, like your periphery, even right. if you didn't actively read it, you were aware yeah. of it. Yeah. You yeah, know? yeah. It was like, Oh, well, you know, if you're, if you're that awkward nerdy kid, well, maybe you should try, you should try reading one of these books. So, and then of course, Harry Potter, you know, I think, Uh, Harry Potter blowing up made people go, okay, like fantasy can sell blockbuster, you know? And, and so again, we got, uh, another great success story. Those happened sort of in parallel, didn't they? Uh, the, yes. Uh, well, I mean, Harry Potter was, the books was first. And then of course, yeah, the movies, like the first few movies were coming out. They, they happened sort of simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah, so we it was like um you yeah, guys were nerds were drinking really well and uh, <laughs> it was also the 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 boon of uh the start of the like uh superhero boon um the, like uh the wave of of uh Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and and the uh the Fox-led X-Men movies. Oh man. Uh which were actually decently uh popular for the time, especially Spider-Man. Um, you must have been full of hope. Excited yes. for the future. It was great. It was great. Uh, taking nothing for granted. I forget where I, we kind of we kind of lost. I kind of feel like I lost the plot a little bit there. But I remember what what got us talking about that. But somewhere, around the minds of Moria is where Mines we got Mo- turned around. Yes. I think. <laughs> well, um, that's why that, that's why I need a great wizard to lead us. So,
0: well, I I, I think, and maybe this is my attempt at a thesis, right? Mm-hmm. But I think maybe what makes these stories so compelling and enduring is is the very is the opening hook is so warm and and cozy and you have this very very clear lovely picture of what it's like to live a peaceful simple life mm-hmm. um, and what it's like to live with no crazy desire for adventure um, no need for luxurious things you know a, a a loaf of bread and some butter a nice frothy mug of beer and a good friend to, you know, tell a story with. And this is, like, just obviously immediately a very, very appealing picture of what life could be. Mm-hmm. And then you have this sort of fumb- fumb- fumbly old wizard who approaches with his pipe in his lip. And uh, and Frodo and Sam and the Shire are so delighted to see him. and um, And I think this is, like, critical to where the films go is this idea that you love the shire, you love home, you love what life is and life is worth living. Like, I think that's really, really important because if you do not value life, if you don't have true joy in your home to come back to, then why would you go fight for the sake of the universe? Um, Like, why would you, I mean, I'm not of the universe, I guess, because it's, it's, uh, you know, as far as I know, hobbits aren't inter interstellar. Um, right, yeah. But, uh, you know, for the fate of, of lower middle and, and whatever Earth. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I, honestly, it, I was thinking Spider-Man. Like, you can't be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man if there's no neighborhood to come back to. You have to have this idea of home. Like, you have mm-hmm. to have this central idea of what is it like to live a life and be cared for and care for another. And I think that hook at the very beginning is so strong because everywhere you go from there, you you, just as Frodo maybe are craving to be back in the Shire. You you know that when you get back home it's gonna be so sweet. Mm-hmm. Um and of course we we get that. You get the return journey home in Return of the King and Sam settles down and uh they all share a mug and um so so I don't know. That's my two cents. I feel like it does such an effective job of painting a picture of how joyous and simple life can be. And mm-hmm. I think that's part of what makes it so uh, endearing. And I think Harry Potter similarly has a very wholesome essence to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get these mo like Ron's family maybe is a, right. is a similar type of a, of a feeling.
1: Well, like uh, like uh, Hogwarts itself, like uh, the coziness of uh, Hogwarts Gryffindor's itself, common yeah. common room. You know, you definitely yeah. feel like uh, like it is a it is a protected space. Yeah, Uh, I did want to speak a little bit to what your point was earlier, because it it is actually a probably the biggest deviation from the books uh, in terms of like the plot um, is that uh, the Shire actually gets taken over Uh, when they come back. It's actually taken over by Saruman, and he's actually like enslaved the 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 hobbits and stuff and what? uh yeah yeah i'm 100 percent serious yeah in the books that's huge it's huge it's a huge i mean that's a difference. massive change but you also have to think of, like in a, in, a, in a movie sense right that would be really difficult after you get to this big old climax right and then they come home and then there's like another big like battle that has to happen basically um where they where they like fight to get their home back um, and I think I, I think mean I would have watched it I mean I would too, I would too, but it is an interesting point of of difference right uh is that like when they return uh the Shire is actually not uh uh untouched uh it does uh feel uh you know the sting of war and and the impact of what happens, and that um and I think this is uh again influenced by him uh tolkien writing uh uh with experiences uh from fighting in the uh the first world war and and hearing about the stories of the of the of the soldiers who came back from the second world war you know that that these when when evil is really on the march like um like e- even your idyllic home uh can can still be attacked and that um it's not enough to live a quiet pastoral life if you're not willing to, if you're not willing or capable of defending it. And so when the hobbits return home, you know, they have to fight to rescue uh, the hobbits. And really they, they have to because the other hobbits aren't fighters. Like they haven't gone, they haven't gone through the trials uh, that, that they have, like they're not capable of being warriors. So, Um, but I think what Peter Jackson did smartly And, you know, and again, it might have pacing reasons, budget reasons, right? Um, He chose to sort of pivot. And I think the story of them returning maybe would relate a lot more to uh, modern American soldiers returning home. Yeah, wow. Where they uh, they carry a lot of the wounds of war uh, from all the things that that they had to do. uh, And they come back heroes. um, And... Um, everybody's kind of happy, but the, the, uh, you know, everybody's happy that they're home, but they're kind of like, they almost like are, they kind of have to keep a lot of the stuff, uh, at a distance, uh, in a way, like you can kind of see that when they're, when they're in their, uh, their old, uh, uh, tavern, you know, uh, they're, they're, everybody's kind of, all the hobbits are kind of blissfully like, you know, celebrating as hobbits do. And they're a lot more heavy, Sam, of course, marries Rosie and has children and and makes a life for himself, but Frodo can't you know Frodo is too scarred by the by by the events of the war that uh that he can't have that he can't go back to just living a normal life he can't go yeah. back to a pastoral life which ultimately um, for-
0: decide uh, results in him deciding to uh take the ship with the elves. I mean that right. that's book accurate it has to be right? I yes. mean I can't imagine. Yeah,
1: yeah that is that is uh, accurate so him like returning home, writing the book, um uh finishing it up and him finally making the decision that um uh that he needs to leave uh, uh and he and the, the elves. So he he's one of the last people of Middle-earth um or he's with like one of the last uh, groups of uh, elves um to leave uh middle yeah. earth um and you know that's like the kind of the the gift that they give him the last gift that they give him is yeah um they get they let him uh to leave peacefully well and the um, elves
0: leaving because the time of man is 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 now what at its apex and Sauron is defeated and so now they're moving on to their truer home or whatever right
1: right yeah to to return back to the shores of of um, on the oh, name but basically oh. their home continent so uh where they're from and yeah, yeah. um sarumon enslaving
0: the shire is that's such a huge change but again i mean understanding you to have some like like doing three films is hard obviously because each film needs its own rising and falling action it needs its own you know tension
1: mm-hmm. um
0: but then also you have to have that through line across the entire series and how do you take all the elements and what do you keep and what do you delete and how do you convert it so it works in theaters. And I mean, it sounds like what Peter Jackson and, and company decided to do is they really put all the tension into that final climb up to Mount Doom. Mm-hmm. And and that was that was the end. Um, right. Right. I mean, to to – You mentioned that the bit between Sam and Frodo was, um, you know, was more so traumatized in the films versus in the books. Uh, They did more there. Um, And then after that, I think it would be very important that our heroes could come back to a place of true peace, like knowing what they had just gone on. Like it would be cruel to take Sam and Frodo and all that they had done in those films and then have them finally get back to the Shire only to find out now they had to fight some new war. Right.
1: Yeah, some other war um, against uh, Saruman's uh, uh, people. So, but at uh, the same time, yeah. now now I'm more
0: interested than ever to read the book. So, congratulations! You've sold um, you've sold some tree 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 paper today.
1: There you go. Uh, they they you know the 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 prose can be a little bit dry. So, you know maybe audiobook, maybe make may make it a little bit more palatable. palatable. Hmm. I don't know. Um, I mean, I loved it. Like, I, I yeah. ate it up. But, um, I know that's a big criticism uh, that it it often has as a book, as the books is they they are dry. Or he he spends a lot of time on <laughs> on poetry and songs. Like he writes out whole songs that you read in the book as the characters are singing. I love it them. sounds like brilliant. I ate it up. But a lot of people felt like, you know, we want to get back to the action. We want to get no back way. to the drama.
0: But no way. In fact, I'm almost insulted that you would think that you would need to warn me of that. How dare you? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, uh, I, 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 there's only it, one it. other thought that I have. Only one other one other thing that I'm wondering. Question that I need answered. I'm hoping you can offer me the closure I need. Why didn't the I'm, Ents show up at the final battle for Gondor?
1: Uh, I think was because part of it is distance. So, like, again, geography. the movie kind of truncates a lot of, like, right. It sort of, the of obfuscates the,
0: the the geography of everything.
1: But I think also the Ents really only battled Sar- Saruman because Saruman had specifically, like, um, like destroyed their forests. Of course, right? yeah. So, and then once they did that, because they, they the Ents are warriors by nature so they they basically wanted to uh, they wanted to spend all of their time and energy uh rebuilding the forest and trying to have the uh let it heal from the scars so right. uh that Sa- that saruman had put on it um so i think they just they just didn't they as if like they didn't care but it's that their it wasn't well, their but their fight. motivation
0: for fighting in the first place was to protect their home not right. necessarily to join some greater cause no of course that makes sense. As soon as I asked it,
1: the the last inch, uh, March of the Ents uh, is still again so epic. I I love that scene, especially after, um, uh, uh Merry and Pippin are basically pleading on them, please, please, um, you know, stand up and do something, you, you yeah. sleeping giants, like y- you can do something. And I think it also is a, is a slight commentary on um on how like um like quiet rational democracy um can can rob uh like these like people from doing the right thing in a sense right sure it's very easy to sort of like um to talk very quietly and rationally about all the reasons why you shouldn't fight um yeah you know because it's too far away it's not your fight it doesn't affect you um but then once they see the uh the um the carnage then you know they they don't have a choice anymore and and it it makes it real for them um and again like it's such an epic scene when they're Mm -hmm. uh they're marching but it's also solemn in a way because as we've gotten to learn who the ants are and and how they live and stuff like that it's like these these peaceful creatures that would 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 not (laughs) harm would try to avoid harming any uh goodly living creature and they're just like well in the in the in the sense of like the the forest (laughs) protecting the forest obviously they don't have a problem killing goblins and orcs like that that's established sure but but like in the sense of like you know every like you know you know, from the you know all the leaves, all the trees are precious. Uh, you know, the squirrels and the little animals are precious. Uh, everything in the forest is precious. And then, sure, and then you know, them going full ham and uh, and wrecking Saruman's stuff. It's an awesome moment. Yes. So and it's it's hard because my
0: modern biases also affect the way I perceive. You know, I'm sort of perceiving it backwards, right? Because I'm I'm looking at these films perceiving them now versus having seen them and then perceiving everything else through them years and years after. But I'm watching the Ents take on Saruman's tower and Merry and Pippin join in. And I'm ashamed to admit that I was like, Oh, this is just like infinity war. Yeah. when you know, rocket hops on Groot's shoulder and Thor (laughs) comes down from the, from the Bifrost. And again, it's like that's not really a direct comparison. It's just the last time I saw a big battle with a bunch of weird cast of characters come together. Um again, really showing my youth here, but um, I'm I'm glad to have been re familiarized with the epic yeah. works of Peter Jackson a la J.R. Tolkien. And uh and and hopefully I will uh wise it up real
1: quick man i you, you definitely should should read the books and i can't wait to hear your perspective uh unquestionably the movies are triumphs um peter jackson and team did an amazing job with lord of the rings mm. uh, love the adaptation love the extended edition yep um just amazing amazing works yep. um and even i just as relevant today um and just as re- watchable today as as they were when they first came out
0: yeah a very enduring and important story which is um that that anyone could find the strength within themselves to decline power to to reject authority or fascism or some idea that that everything should be your way um as long as they had the right friend to help, I think. I think that is mm. really critical. I think that's why there's a Fellowship of the Ring. I think that's why Sam and Frodo go together. I think that's like a key part of what Tolkien is trying to say: is we have to band together, all of
1: us. And I think it's also really beautiful how he ends it, or ends the fate of the Ring, um, by by Frodo um, actually giving in to the Ring, and it's actually Gollum. Who who ultimately destroys the ring, um, but not because of some great force of will, but because um, he was so consumed by the greed of of, of the ring. It's very much like an Icarus moment. Yeah, it's like self. It it shows that ultimately, like the the greed and power hungry nature, the manipulative nature of the ring is self defeating, right? Is that. you know, it still took all the other characters, uh, all the good people, carrying it up to that point. But I think that there is something beautiful about saying that, like, um, you know, good people can falter, um, and at the end, but uh, at the same time, if the good work is done, um, you know, evil will defeat itself because that is its nature. You know, and and, and I think and just to be a, clear, there were no major changes. In how the ring fell into
0: the fires of Mount Doom, you know, books to movies—that's the same,
1: pretty much. I mean, they they actioned it up a little bit. Obviously, but you have to action it. To say,
0: <gasps> yeah, right.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit more action, more of a tussle. But fundamentally, yeah, uh, uh, he bites off uh, um, Frodo's ring finger and falls, and uh, and it, he's dancing as he's so happy that uh, that he has the ring again. Uh, yeah. And he slips and falls and, and, and falls into Mount Doom. It makes all the biting that Smeagol slash Gollum does throughout the film
0: very foreshadowy, right? I yes. mean, using those nasty, gnarly teeth, and you see him do it so many times, and you see his teeth so many times, and you think about how nasty that must be, that for when he finally bites off you know, Frodo's finger, you have a very intimate sense of exactly how painful that must be. And how much gums, how much of his gums Gollum must be using versus how much of his rotten old teeth. It just, yes, very brilliantly, um, you know, those pieces are very, very brilliantly laid in advance so that when that bite happens, you feel it fully.
1: And I, I love the wisdom uh, that uh, Gandalf shares with Frodo in the first movie and in the first book where 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 Frodo's like, I, it's a pity uh, uh, Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. And then... Gandalf wisely tells him that you know taking someone's life, it you know is a big burden to bear, and mm. you know nobody can see all ends, and you know um, you know you you shouldn't you know tell basically tells him that um, you know if you're going to take you, you basically you shouldn't take someone's uh, life just because you feel like it's the right thing to do, right? You know? um, and like ultimately, like. Gollum and slash Smeagol goes through his, his, uh, torments and he does ultimately lose to, um, the draw of the evil. But, um, Gandalf was right that like, he still had an important part to play. And without him, if he had died, like they, they never would have made it. Well, to. but in part, I mean, and Gollum is not entirely to blame in part because Sam
0: fails to trust Frodo. Sam fails to do as Frodo does and fully, you know uh uh uh, uh, love and embrace smeagol's presence um you know to fully accept it at least right um i think that's also a really critical component like like that sam for all of his successes has this critical failure which is that he you know wants to kill smeagol violently yes Um, you know gandalf for all of his successes and wisdoms has this critical failure, which is that he's very, very rude and demeaning
1: to the hobbits at times. Yes. Uh, it, it, full of a took, right. He's kind of got that vibe of like, uh, he, he knows he's the smartest person in the room and, and he can, right. he can, he's, he's fine to put up with their, with their antics so long as they're harmless. But when he's, um, you know, you know, as someone who feels like he needs to be, you know, his intelligence sort of puts him in charge. Like, and yes. Then, these foolish characters, you know, going about and, and, and basically being children. Like, he can't stand it. Um, and again, like, the, the, that's the flaw of Gandalf's character. Um, like, he's wise enough to know that it is ultimately, like, a hobbit and the smallest of creatures that it needs to take, carry the ring. Sure. But he's still, he's still sort of wrapped up uh, in his wizardly arrogance. Um, Whoop it, he's but. just not consumed by it like Saruman. And that they are all flawed in these key ways. Like Boromir is corrupted by the ring.
0: Right. Gimli uh, you know, takes everybody into the minds of Moria for his own selfish reasons. Frodo yep. is corrupted by the ring and betrays Sam. Sam wants to kill Smeagol. They all have these critical moments of, uh, you know, Aragorn broods too much and he, and he abandons the people at Rohan. He doesn't explain what he's going to do or give them any hope. He just walks away, leaving them to think that the king of the future king of gondor has has failed them they all have these moments where they're flawed characters right in the way that you would you would you would hope for the way that people ask for nowadays you know, give us these realistic flawed characters these characters aren't just flawed in that they have you know crooked teeth or you know ugly marks on their skin you know these characters are flawed in that they they do hurt each other in ways and... that are meaningful to the story um and in ways that They learn to forgive each other for, which I think is what makes the story feel so real and impactful because you have these these lived experiences. It feels very much like the kinds of things that would happen to real people who would go on this journey. You would have good days and bad days. You would be kind and you would be, you know, you would be you would be mean. And so um, I think all these pieces together are part of what make Lord of the Rings feel so good. And so make the story endure
1: so well. Yes, yes, Um, I agree characters um definitely brought brought it all together and that's that's why the first one's called the fellowship of the ring you know and like that that's why we needed to know all of these characters and i agree it is the reason why one of the biggest reasons why it holds up so well and that you, they can have a cast of nine main characters and they, they <laughs> yes. all i mean you know maybe truly it's closer to six but still like that they all sort of resonate and in their own ways and people are going to pick their favorites like the avengers you know like you, you get to pick your favorites and and get attached to the mix of personalities and and how they all bounce off each other and it's a beautiful story yep absolutely we are well over time my friend we are, but when you talk, start talking about Lord of the Rings, much like the movies themselves, we I think we had two or three different endings in this episode. I know, I know. I so feel it's like very I, fitting.
0: Well, I feel like I finally woke up about thirty minutes ago, so maybe <laughs> we'll just maybe we'll end the call, but we'll keep
1: going. I don't know. Let's yeah, stay tuned for a triumph bonus episode, maybe. Who knows? We'll see. Well, in, in the meantime, I hope uh, you all have a great rest of your day, and see you next time. if you didn't know now you're
0: about to know episodes of triumph air every other thursday guys thanks so much for being part of the show we love talking to each other we love talking to each other in front of you guys digitally we're gonna keep doing it for probably a while longer so thanks for listening see you on
1: the next one